So this week we're going to be talking about uh, down-to-earth obedience, and uh, you know, we've talked about out of this passage in Philippians when Paul is writing to the church, and uh, the great early hymn of the church, you know, and, and he talks about love and humility and Christ who did not count equality with God as something to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself in taking the form of a slave. And then it goes on and it says, and he became obedient, uh, even obedient unto the point of death on a cross. And so uh, there's that, that piece in the hymn about obedience. What Paul's really talking about uh, this week as we continue into it is really more uh, our obedience to God uh, than he's talking about necessarily about Christ's obedience. And, and I'm aware that that word obedience uh, fills some of us with uh, ambivalent feelings. Uh, uh, you, know, some, you know, we don't necessarily like that kind of phrase and we don't like to you know, here in America you know we don't, we don't want to be obedient and don't particularly care for that and uh, you know Cindy was teaching a, a women's study years ago in Seguin on Richard Foster's celebration of discipline and they were really all good until they got to the chapter on submission and obedience and then they revolted and well, we're just not going to do that, <laughs> right? Because we, we just don't like that. So I want to frame that a little bit for you as we start uh, this morning. Uh, this phrase obedience, if you look in uh, Merriam-Webster, uh, the definition, uh, compliance with an order, request, or law, uh, submission to another's authority. And then it was interesting I had that, that the third one was observance of a monastic rule, which I hadn't really you know, kind of lumped into that category and that made me start thinking about well why what's what's the motivation why are we obedient uh, and so there's some different motivations uh, one is we might want to be perceived as good you know we like to be the, the good person and the good upstanding person or you know sometimes somebody likes to be the good child or the now, now parents you know sometimes there's this thing called the good parent syndrome and this is where you decide that, you know, your children's behavior reflects on you. So, you know, you're, you're overly concerned and, and observant and that's sometimes harsh about your children's behavior because you want to make sure that they're seen as behaving well because you think that makes you look like a good parent. Uh, so I just want you to know, you, you can do a lot of damage that way. So uh, don't go down that road. But, you know, we have this thing, you know, we want to be seen as good. We want to be perceived that way. Uh, sometimes we want to avoid punishment. And if you grew up in my household and you got hit over the head with a wooden spoon enough, the top of my head is still tender from all those whacks. And so you kind of get to where, yeah, I, I don't want to, no, please, just I don't want to get hit anymore. So, you know, you, I want to avoid that. Um, being rewarded. Uh, there may be a reward. Somebody will say, well, we'll do this for you if you'll do that. You know, if you'll behave, we'll give you this or something. So there's a, a reward in that. Or, or reaping a benefit. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, if you do what your doctor says, you're healthier. I know that comes as a shock. Uh, but, you know, that thing. And, and I don't know about you, but, you know, they, those things they tell you, and sometimes they tell us over and over. Uh, but if you listen, you know, I mean, that can help you uh, reap a benefit of being more healthy. Uh, but there's also a, a reality that, that goes back to uh, when I think about that monastic rule and, and complying with a the request, there's a reality of obedience that is sometimes motivated by love, uh, that we do it out of love for someone, uh, that we care about them. And so when they ask something of us, we do that for them out of love. Now, if you have a dog, you know this, because this is the way dogs work, right? Dogs are obedient because they love you. Oh, please, what, what can I do? What can I do? You know, cats don't care. Uh, you know, they it really, it just doesn't matter. But, you know, dogs are all over this. But, but we do this with each other. Uh, you know, children, uh, you know, will sometimes obey parents because they love their parents. And, you know, sometimes parents, we, we, we comply with the request of our children, even though we may not want to and it may not be what we had planned. We do it because we love them. 
And we do that between, you know, spouses. We'll do those kinds of things. But out of love, we'll comply with the request. We'll let go of the remote control. Or we'll wear that outfit that we really don't want to wear. You know, but, but we do it out of love. I mean, so, you know, love is a motivator. And, and in Scripture, love is the most powerful motivator. Uh, that, that God pours out love on us. And in return, in love, we pour love out on God. And part of that is by complying with what God asks of us. So when Paul, in this next section of Philippians, when Paul starts writing, he says, Therefore, my beloved, because the, the church in Philippi, these are people he loves. Um, you know, some of Paul's letters are rather stern, uh, and it's pretty clear that he's upset with people. But, but, but he has a, a real soft spot in his heart for the church in Philippi. Uh, he has a tremendous love for them, and they have a tremendous love back to him. And, and so this letter is written from, from that viewpoint. It's written out of love. So he writes to them out of love. So here this morning when we talk about down-to-earth obedience, here it is that, that kind of uh, complying with one another that arises not out of fear of punishment, um, but out of love. Let's pray. Mighty God, um, come and be in the midst of us and and open our minds and our hearts and our spirits by the light of your presence. Uh, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now I'm just going to tell you, yesterday was a beautiful day and I was driving around and having a great time and all that. And, you know, the wind was out of the south and everything felt good. And then the wind turned to the north this morning and it brought the cedar so this is Tom on two Zyrtec and Flonay. So if I nod off in the middle of the sermon, just come up and wake me up, okay, Mac? I mean, so we come in. So, so Paul writes and he says, My beloved, as you've always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. You hear? I mean, it's, it's out of love. You, you know, when I was there, you obeyed me. But even though I'm not there, you're still doing what I ask of you. Uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Sometimes when we read that through, people read that work out your own salvation as uh, work for your own salvation, as, as working to, to earn that. And really that's uh, not what the Greek implies. What it, what it means is work it out or live it out, demonstrate it, show it in your living. Uh, let your salvation be seen uh, in, in all that you do and how you live uh, as you're you know, going about your life. Uh, so let it be seen, work it out, live it out in all that you do with fear and trembling. You know, as you move through Scripture, uh, there, there's, there's places where God asks things of God's people in different places. And, and, you know, sometimes they're kind of quiet requests and sometimes they're really big asks. So, you know, God goes to Abraham and says, listen, I want you to uproot all your family and your household and everything. And, and, and you go to a place where I'm going to show you. And you notice he doesn't say, you go to this place. He says, you go to a place where I'll show you. In other words, just root, uproot everything and everyone in your life and start traveling. And when you get there, I'll let you know. That's a big ask. Uh, he goes to Noah and he says, Noah, I want you to build this ark and start gathering all these animals. And Noah's friends and neighbors think he's lost his mind. But it's a big ask. Uh, he goes to Moses and says, Moses, listen, I want you to go back to Pharaoh's court. Now remember, Moses leaves Pharaoh court because he's killed someone. He's committed murder. And so he leaves the court for that reason. So going back to Pharaoh's court is, is stepping into the possibility of being executed. He says, I want you to go back to Pharaoh's court and tell him to let my people, the Israelites, go, the Hebrews go. It's a big ask. 
Uh, and in all those kinds of stories through Scripture, you know, there's a big yes that's given to that. Abraham and, and Noah and Moses and others, there's this big yes. And without that, the story would be very different. Um, and so today, you know, you have this, this story we're going to look at where, where the angel comes to Mary and says, Hello, favored one, the Lord is with you. I've got great news. You're going to be the mother of the Messiah. It's a big ask. Now, now you know, we sometimes forget the, the size of that ask uh, in our culture. Because, you know, when, when, when the angel comes to Mary, you know, her response is, one, okay, how's that going to happen? You know, one, it's physically, it's just not possible. But, but it's also culturally unacceptable. I mean, the risk that Mary runs is that, you know, her village will throw her out. They might stone her. Joseph will leave her. Her family will abandon her. Everyone she knows and loves will turn their backs on her. It's a big ask. It's a big ask. And, and Mary's response is a big yes back to God. And, and all those big yeses, Abraham and, and, and Noah and, and Moses and Mary and others all through Scripture, you know, without those, the story would be very different. You know, if Mary had, had said to the angel, oh, heck no, I'm not doing that, uh, you know, the whole Christmas story would look real different, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, it wouldn't be. I mean, we wouldn't be doing this. I mean, it would have changed the whole salvation story of the Gospels. I mean, it's this big yes. God comes to us sometimes and he asks these things that are, that are overwhelming and huge and, and are beyond our understanding and we don't get it. And, and the story of, of Scripture is the salvation story is that people, even though they don't understand it and can't grasp it, in love, they say yes. And in love, Mary says, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Let it be with me. Here am I. Um, as I was doing devotions this week, one of them that Matt Leroy had, had a really uh, great uh, comment on this part of the story, the, the Christmas narrative. He's, he talks about Mary and Eve. He says, Mary's response in Nazareth stands in direct contrast to Eve's response in the Garden of Eden. Faced with that first temptation, Eve's response of doubt leads to insurrection against God. Mary's response of trust leads to surrender to God. Eve is tempted to see herself as the Lord's equal. Remember, uh, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like God. Mary responds by saying, I am the Lord's servant. Eve is tempted to doubt the words of God. And Mary responds by saying, may it be to me as you've said. <laughs> Let it be to me according to your word. In that contrast. And I started thinking about that, how often it is that um, God gathers up uh, and makes those asks of people in Scripture that aren't necessarily the people we would choose. You know, we would pick people of power and influence and prestige and, you know, knowing and knowledge and all those kinds of qualities that we value so much. And God doesn't tend to do that. Uh, God tends to go to people that are different from that. Uh, and, and I start kind of thinking about the fact that, you know, so often in our education and our sophistication and our learning and our knowledge, what happens is the more we learn and the more influence we have and the more education we have, the more we think we got this. And so God comes and makes the big ask. And if we don't understand, oh, I'm sorry, that just doesn't make sense. I'm not going to do that. Or I can't see how that's possible. I'm not going to do that. 
and we begin to use our understanding and our sense of power and strength instead of relying on God's. You know, when, when God calls David as king, uh, you know, they bring all of his brothers first before the high priest, right? You know, they're, they're parading them all, they're big strapping guys, right? They bring them all in. Well, surely this is the guy, you know, the oldest brother and, and, and the bigger brother. Surely this is the one you want. Surely this is the one you want. And he keeps going, no, 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 not that one, not that one, not that one. And finally they bring in David, who's the runt of the litter. Uh, literally, he's the youngest. Uh, he's the smallest of all of them. And they bring him in and God says, that's him. And the family and the people around go, what? What? You, what? what? And the high priest says, listen, don't you understand that, man, you know, we, we look on the appearance, the outer uh, appearance of someone, but God's looking on the heart. You know, we, we tend to get so sucked into that where we think that it's all about what we are able to do and what we are able to understand and what we are able to influence instead of what God is doing. Instead of what God is doing. And so we begin to substitute ourselves for God. Mary knows she doesn't understand it. She knows she has no idea how it's going to happen. I mean, she's just overwhelmed by all of it. And, and yet, in love, she trusts God enough to say, here I am, servant of the Lord, that be with me according to your word. Just here I am. And that's really what the big ask and the big yes is all about. It's about a willingness to, to get ourselves out of the way and allow God to do what only God can do. As Paul says, in our weakness, God's strength is made known. So, so he tells them, right? As you've always obeyed me, now I'm present, but much more absent. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And that, that phrase, fear and trembling, uh, I, I want you just to hear that because sometimes when God calls us into things, we think that, oh, well, now that, we've, that God's called us, you know, we're, we're going to know exactly what to do and we're going to be confident in everything we're going to do and we're going to be assured and we're not going to be scared and all that. No, that, that's not what he says, is it? It's, it's fear and trembling. I mean, Mary may have been willing to say, here I am, let it be me according to your word, but, but there was some fear and trembling in that because she still faced the reality that her village might try to stone her. She still faced the reality that her family might abandon her, that Joseph might walk away from her. She still faced that. But I want you to think about the rest of this whole story, too, and the fear and trembling in Mary. You know, sometimes we forget to spend much time with Mary because we Protestants tend to think, oh, that's a Roman Catholic thing and all, and we kind of ignore that. But, but you, know, you know, Mary's the one that's rock solid through the Gospels. She's the one that's always there. Remember when Jesus is crucified? It's Mary, the women, and John, only John, the disciple, who are there at the cross. The other disciples have run away. But surely there was a lot of fear and trembling. What was it like the first time Jesus did something amazing or something miraculous? And she's looking at him thinking, what? I mean, what, what was that like for her? What was it like for her when she began to realize that he was gathering attention that might be harmful to him? What was it like for her when he was arrested? What was it like for her when she watched them beat him and scourge him? What was it like to stand at the cross and watch him die? You know, sometimes when I'm in the hospital with parents and uh, children are going to have surgery, parents say things like, <clears throat> boy, I wish I could just do that for them. I wish I was doing this instead of them. I mean, you know, we, don't, we want to... 
shield our kids and protect them and we want to you know, keep anything bad from happening to them? What was it like for Mary to have to sit and watch all of that happen to her son? Fear and trembling. You better believe she had fear and trembling. But she still said yes out of love and in confidence for God. In Moses' story, when God calls him uh, and says, I want you to go and, and you know, be my spokesperson to Pharaoh, you know, Moses, uh, <laughs> you know, Moses knows the cost that's possible there. I mean, one, the Hebrews don't know him. They may not know who he is. They may not respect him. But he knows going back into Pharaoh's court could be his death sentence. But when God speaks to Moses, this is what he says. I've observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Lots of ites back then. But, 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 but he's calling, and he says, listen, I've, I've seen it. I've observed their misery. I've heard their cry. I know my heart's with them. I know their sufferings. I mean, God's saying, I'm not, I'm not off somewhere separate from here. I'm in the middle of the people. I've seen it firsthand what they're going through. And I have come to deliver them. Not I'm sending you to deliver them. I have come to deliver them. All you got to do, Moses, is tell Pharaoh, I'm doing the work. And that's the power of it. When God makes the big ask and we say the big yes, we understand that it's not contingent upon our understanding or our power or strength, but rather it's God with us, Emmanuel, who is at work. And it's the power and the strength of God working. And Paul would remind the Philippians, it's God who's at work in you, enabling you both to will and work for his good pleasure. It's God who's at work in you. It's not what you're able to do, but it's what God is able to do in you and through you. That matters. And Mary, <laughs> Mary grasps that. Even though she doesn't understand, she trusts in the ability of God to do what God says he will do. And so she praises him. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. My soul magnifies. Not that, that, my, that she's trying to make God any bigger. What that means is my soul praises the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God. He's looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. But listen, surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. I mean, when you read through the whole Magnificat, as she makes this song back and sings in praise of God, she sings about things that have not happened yet as if they had already occurred. Because she trusts the power of God to do what God says God will do. And that's the whole key. That's the whole key to being able to say yes. Know in love that God has come to be with us and we can trust. We can trust in love. That God will do what God has said. And when we begin to do that, that's when God begins to be able to work through us. When, when we get ourselves out of the way, that's when the world begins to be able to see what God is doing in the midst of the world. Jesus, when he speaks to his disciples and, and the crowd during the uh, Sermon on the Mount, says, you know, you're the light of the world. 
A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. You're, you're the light of the world. You're to let God's light shine into the world. It's not about your light. It's about God's light shining through you out into the midst of the world. And that's where the power of this comes, when we get ourselves out of the way and let God's light shine through us. As Paul reminds the Philippians, do all things without murmuring and arguing so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. Crooked and perverse generation. Gee, does that sound familiar? Gee, have you read the paper lately? Been on the internet or watched the news or listened to the radio? I mean, crooked and perverse generation. I mean, this is the call. You know, you get yourself out of the way so that God's light can shine in the midst of that because if you do that, then you get to shine like stars in the midst of this world, and the world needs to see that light so much. It doesn't need to see you, the world needs to see God and the light and the life and the hope of God. And later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus even kind of gives us a taste of what that might look like if we get out of the way and let God work with us. I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you gave me clothing. I was sick, you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. You know, we, we come into Advent and we come into Christmas and, and it's really easy for us to kind of turn in on ourselves. It becomes all about our family traditions and the things that we like to do and those wonderful memories we hold and the things we do every year. And it, and it becomes all about what we do and us. And, and the story today reminds us that this really is what God is doing. The story is not at all about us. The story is about the love of God being born in the midst of us and calling us to get ourselves out of the way and let the light and the life and the hope of God shine out into the world. So as you get ready to, to celebrate the birth of Christ, uh, I'm just wondering if, if, if maybe there's some ask that God has of you. And if you're willing to open your heart up to hear what that is, and then be ready to say back with Mary, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come to this time of the year and we, we come with a warm emotion and with hope. Uh, we come with gatherings of families that bring joy to us and, and memories that sustain us in difficult times. And, uh, and yet it is so easy for us in this time uh, to allow the holiday to become about what we want and about what we need and about what makes us feel good. And so we close ourselves off to the majesty of what you're doing. So open our eyes and our hearts, our spirits. Let us see this tremendous love with which you are coming into the midst of the world. And let us, trusting in that love, have enough confidence to set ourselves aside, to set aside our lack of understanding and, and our lack of strength and power and trust enough in you to be able to say, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.